You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. So welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. Today, I'm here with Emery Erpan and Nathan. Oh, Nathan, I never asked you how to pronounce your name. I'm going to go with Tenboa. Yeah. You've got it correct. Tenboa, please. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, no, Tenboa. Okay, not Boa. Fine. Um, noted. Who are Director of Operations, Consultancy and Insights and Lead Partner Manager in Insights at Unity, respectively. Thank you both so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Um, love being here. Thank you. Very excited. We are, you guys are, are responsible for the Mammoth um, Unity Gaming Report. Is that correct? I think responsible is a um, is a loaded word because we're just a small part of the bigger team that takes part of it. But the, the gaming reports did start with our team initially, but we brought in so many from marketing and our insights career and everybody else across the company. So you're part of the wonderful team that brings this amazing report to life. And that is what we are um, here to discuss today to unpack some of the interesting stuff um, that's in the latest Unity Gaming report, which came out, I think, just, just recently around the time of GDC. So maybe let's start with the basics for anyone who's not familiar. Um, what is what is the Unity Gaming Report from from the people who would sort of started it, even if the, today they're part of a larger team? Yeah, so um, I guess at a high level, the Unity Gaming Report is kind of the culmination of all the data that Unity has, you know, as one of the world's top game engines and gaming services platforms. You know, we have petabytes, probably, I don't know what the next step of, above petabyte is, but we have a ton, a ton of data from games made in the Unity engine to live games operating our Unity gaming services, and then from the thousands of games that actually monetize with um, in-app ads and IAP through our monetization platform. And for a long time, we really only utilize this data to aid our biggest game developers with database insights and analysis. Um, but we realized that if we really wanted democratized game creation, which is kind of the goal of our overall company, we should also find a way to get that information out to every other game that's out there. So from from this idea, uh, the the first gaming report was born in, in 2019, um, and we're aiming to cover all aspects of the gaming industry from PC, console, mobile, uh, hyper casual to core games, um, and we go through topics that range from creation uh, to live game operations, uh, monetization, and, and user acquisition, uh, the whole gamut. And the cool thing about the report is that it, it's built on top of real game data. So there's a lot of industry publications and, and insights platforms. Um, and I, I might say that they're, they're looking at their slice. Um, and then there's also ways to pull information from one app store or the other app store. Um, but what's interesting here is we feel like we kind of bridge the gaps there pretty well. So um, tell us a little bit more about what kind of research goes into uh, creating the rapport. What data are you looking at? Um, I assume it's a lot, but what what are the kinds? Yeah, so um, like um, Nathan and I are both people who love and are very nosy about data. So we do frequent explorations of our data while we're working with our developer partners to really help them understand trends in their game's performance. And when we kind of do that research, we start to get glimpses into the overall industry. And as we kind of work with individual developers over the course of a year, we start to really kind of figure out, okay, well, here's what 
a lot of people are asking about. Here's what a lot of people are talking about, which gives us a little bit of direction, you know, as we shift here those petabytes of data that we talked about. Um, so as we do these frequent explorations on our data um, and understand overall trends, we start to really kind of get a sense of what's important to people. So then basically near the end of the year, as we start putting this report together, um, we basically start looking at all the different data sources we pull from our engine, our um, UGS gaming services platform, as well as our ads and monetization platform. Um, and we really start to look at what are the most frequently asked questions so that we can best answer things directly. Because at a report of this size, you can't really go in deep with um, every single topic that people are concerned about. Um, mm -hmm. So we really want to make sure that we are at least hitting uh, a broad swath because um, at the end of the day, once again, it's because we can't go deep, we're trying to hit as many topics as we can so that if there is an area that somebody does want to go deeper in, um, they can engage with the conversation and we can kind of get a little bit more details. And, and just to build quickly, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. So just, just, to, just to add on there, like tactically, the work starts um, you know, in the middle to the end of the previous year, but it, it can't stop until the year's data is completed. So it makes for a very busy year. <laughs> Everyone's favorite month to be busy. Um, so, so that's a, that's a, a good segue, I think to, to my next question, which is sort of like, how do you decide what makes the cut? Um, uh, like what, what, how do you decide what goes in, what doesn't? Um, and any any sort of like pet insights um, from this year that didn't make it in? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few influences. Obviously, um, we want the report to represent the insights and trends that are you know impactful and exciting. Um, there's always hot topics every year, right? In previous years, and it was like crypto, and then now it's like generative AI, and then mm -hmm. before it was virtual reality and augmented reality. So we really want the report to represent, you know, kind of what's being talked about because, frankly, if I'm looking at it. From the perspective, I want as many people to read this as possible. You've got to report the things that are also um, most interesting to people and relevant at the time. But because we want to make their, the impact, we also want to deliver information to developers that helps them kind of make decisions that they might not otherwise have access to. It, it's totally a balance between, yeah, being granular um, and, and you know, really deep onto the, the data insights that, that we're digging for. And then also, yeah, applying to, to everybody. Not everybody's making a fighting game on, on one console, for example. Mm -hmm. And then, like, and a quick shout-out to our cross-functional teams as well that really make everything about this possible. Like, Nathan and I are data people. We're not good at making pretty charts. There's somebody else who's really good at making pretty charts, presenting the information laying out the graphics in the InDesign file, that kind of stuff is really helpful because even if you have the best data in the world, if you can't communicate it to your audience, it's not going to be mm -hmm. useful. So really big shout out to those teams that do it. And then Melissa, you also asked on kind of like pet insights that really didn't quite make it. Um, there were some interesting things that we weren't able to fit into the report just due to kind of page life and everything. One of the things that Nathan and I were looking at um, for this most recent report was actually the breakdown of the percentage of total games being worked on or um, having been released and seeing if they were 2D or 3D title. Um, because we've noticed actually very recently that there's almost been a resurgence of 2D games. Um, for a long time, it was always about, hey, let's do the best 3D graphics that we can, let's get really realistic. But we've seen such a surge of beautifully done 2D kind of games, both on mobile, PC, and console, um, that it's quite interesting because for a while that share was actually declining over time as people moved to more 3D engines like Unity. Uh, but people started to harness the street engines to make really beautiful looking 2D titles. 
we actually saw a 2.5% increase year over year in favor of 2D games, which have actually kind of reversed the trend. And now we're actually getting back to almost a 50-50 split between 2D and 3D. Um, so this trend seems to be consistent because in 2021, we also kind of saw that curve go back up. Um, mm-hmm. So I think um, it, it's cool to see because as people who grew up playing 2D games, uh, it's almost like retro is back or kind of really seeing the resurgence of those old kind of gaming styles and genres that we played as we were kids. They're just, you know, much more high fidelity now, which is awesome. Why do you think that is, if you had to hazard So, I mean, like, if I'm just to hazarding, like, an anecdotal guess, um, people like ourselves who grew up playing 2D games are now the age that we have the resources and the capacity to actually make the same games that we loved playing when we were kids. Um, and mm. also, like, to be honest, um, if I'm going to just be self-serving here, engines like Unity, who are fairly easy to use, and the tool sets that we provide that are fairly kind of straightforward to support, increase accessibility into um, game development, which means that people can start making games much more quickly. But the place that a lot of people start is with 2D because that's what they grew up with. And that's what you can have a lot more flexibility in stylizing. Um, and then also we take a look at the platforms, right? Mobile has been a huge platform that has resurged in the past um, probably half decade. More and more mobile games are coming out and mobile lends itself really well to um, bite-sized experiences, which 2D fits really well into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now that you've given us a little taste, let's dive into some of the trends that you guys covered in the report. So one of the things that you talked about there was the increasing number of studios investing in, and good segue, mobile-only titles, um, particularly from larger studios. Why do you think that is? I mean, I, I have my suspicions. Um, but why are mobile games what are seeing? Why is it mobile games or genres that are seeing the most investment from these larger studios specifically? Yeah, I mean, so when we were pulling this data, we looked at kind of year-over-year increase in mobile-only projects grouped up by the number of developers um, in the organization. So it's hard for us to you know really determine, like, hey, are you an indie studio? Are you a mid-sized studio or a large studio? So to do it um, fairly, we basically said, hey, how many seats do you have in your org? Because we can see how many seats a person, an organization has by um, the number of beauty licenses that they have overall. So in this view, we kind of categorize as large studios had more than 200 seats. Um, and then the midsize and the large and the smaller ones kind of all range within that range. And we saw large studios really create um, in last year, 44% more mobile only projects year over year, which is really cool because traditionally those large studios, um, you know, like the Electronic Arts, the Activisions, um, the big ones like that um, have been really focused on things like um, PC and console games as they're kind of big um, headlining stuff, but we've seen a lot of them start to really start up more mobile projects. And I, I also want to kind of call out that, that while the large studios had that huge jump, um, excuse me, I, it's actually across the board, um, except for one of our groupings, it's slightly down. So, you know, the 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 salacious takeaway is is the 44% lift in, in large studios, but I also kind of just want to call out it just kind of trending that way. All the sizes, um, and that 1% decrease, I, I don't know, I might dig into significance on that. And we'll see it next year. And uh, I'd like to know if it's still decreasing because it just doesn't um, track um, in general. Because like I think what you were alluding to, you think you probably know why. And it's probably because of the payoff. on. Uh, so the large studios are going to make the bigger. And then like, I guess, Melissa, your question about like um, also like the kinds of games that people are making or kind of genres as well. Um, 
a few of them primarily stand out. The large ones who've been making more and more racing and sports games, which previously weren't as popular on mobile, have seen a pretty big resurgence, as well as um, um, MMO games, some massively multiplayer online games, as well as MOBAs. Um, to a lesser extent, we also see like fighting, uh, role-playing games, RPGs, and shooters being made more and more now too, which is awesome because if you think about these genres, racing, sports, MMO, MOBAs, fighting, RPGs, and shooters, these are traditionally more core games. And core games, um, people have often thought, hey, that can't be on mobile. You know, you can't fit that kind of hardcore gaming experience on a small mobile device. Um, entirely the opposite is true. Uh, a lot of people are playing now on that. In fact, um, you know, anecdotally, if you even look at um, younger gamers, like kids, their only gaming device is a phone. And then they, they, they still got to play those games somewhere, right? So that's where we're seeing quite a bit of activity. Mm-hmm. And and continuing to double click on mobile, so the report shows that, and I think that you know this is something that we're seeing a little bit. I mean, it, other other reports would would show the same that more people are playing mobile games compared to 2021, and more of the time, but IAP sort of like conversion rates or, or purchase rates are going. What story? I mean, I think we can sort of um, probably hazard a guess. I, I would. My assumption is games are still great. People still want to play them. There is still a major form of entertainment, but obviously in, in a tougher macroeconomic climate, the, the desire to sort of open your wallet um, is is lower. Um, but what? how do you see kind of what can studios do with this information to sort of like, I don't know, survive slash thrive um, in the current climate? Yeah, I mean, it, it's no secret that there are tougher economic times right now. And um, what we've seen is players are really still interested in games and mobile games in particular, but they're either less interested or less able to purchase premium content. Um, and if you think about it from like the very <laughs> macroeconomic perspective, um, players and I just people in general, they want to get the most bang for their buck when they spend their entertainment dollars. And games in particular actually have probably the best ROI. Like you could spend... Um, you know, $10 and go to a movie theater and be entertained for two hours. Um, or you could spend $20 a month on Netflix subscription, although now we all know that you have to subscribe like Netflix to Hulu to Amazon Prime. And those subscriptions all really add up quite quickly every month um, to get entertainment from those as well. But a mobile game um, that is engaging, you can play for hours, days, weeks, months, and Sometimes you don't have to spend a thing at all. If you don't have to, you can still play. Yes, it'll progress at a slower rate, but you'll still be entertained as you play through it. And if you want to spend $5 to buy that battle pass or that starter pack in that game, you can get a really good ROI on your entertainment dollars, so to say. Um, so yes, it is harder to get conversion now, but really like we'd recommend studios to focus on maximizing their player retention because you know those players who are retaining long-term or play for a while might eventually convert. And, you know, when times get better, those players will convert at a higher frequency, especially um, as the economic position um, hopefully overall improves. Obviously, if we could tell you if the economic situation would improve or not, not we'd probably be investing in different markets right now. <laughs> but, you know, you want to hold on to your players long term because um, you'll be able to kind of ride the wave of the overall economy getting better. And this really can be done through a lot of different tools and strategies. And there's not one size fits all strategy, but we'd encourage every studio to look at their, their player bases, segment them properly, and make sure that you're always optimized. And and, and to add, I, I would say, you know, acquiring that user was the hard part. Keeping them around 
it should be the priority now. And, you know, if, if they don't have, um, the cash, um, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at the time horizon of these players increasing. So maybe the first 30 days, uh, they're a non-payer. Um, and maybe that's true for the next 30 days. Uh, but if they're still in the game, uh, that's overall, uh, a, a, an engaged user is more likely to, to become a, a paying user and then we can reinvest that um, make the game even better so and and i think also um what what the other side of this coin right is that iap is just one way of generating in-game revenue um and and theoretically right someone who's a, not a payer might be an ad watcher which is a good um which is a good segue to my next question because you also talked about kind of the the proportion of um ad revenue versus um iap um ta- can you walk us through those shifts uh and what you think is driving them yeah i mean we have i think published this chart every single year in every single gaming report of the split between um in-app purchases um versus in-app advertising revenues um per game genre and uh year over year we've seen a lot of movement towards ad revenue. If you think about historically, um, way, way back when ads and games were viewed um, very poorly, and I can't blame people for doing that. I was playing games like um, in, in Flash and everything back in the day where there were pop-up ads on your web browser as you're playing them, and yet yeah, does that suck. Um, but on mobile, ads have become a very, very streamlined and good user experience, to be honest. Like a lot of times they're opt-in ads, where you have to kind of say, yes, I'd like to watch something now, and then you actually get a reward for it. Other times, even if they're mm-hmm. um, not opt-in and they kind of pop up um, without the user interaction, they're usually positioned after the user finishes playing a level or right before they finish playing a level, et cetera, um, and um, that's a better user experience. So the ads in general are also much more, I guess, high quality and more to the overall landscape, which means that developers are now more open to using the promotization because <clears throat> if you look at the total percentage of players who actually convert to a paying user across all games it's it's frankly quite oh it's anywhere from one to two percent on average so basically that means that 98 to 99 percent of your total player base um is not going to be generating revenue for you and those 98 to 99 percent are still taking um, resources, so to say, you know, there's server costs, there's backend costs, there's mm-hmm. rows in a table for your user accounts, et cetera. So you have to figure out some way to monetize them. And a lot of gaming companies back in the day would just hinge on converting that extra one or 2% of people over. And then once those people convert, basically you try and extract as much money from them as possible, you know, to turn them into whales. Now that's not a really sustainable business model, especially in these economic times where maybe those players don't have as much money to spend. Maybe they can only do one $5 purchase and that's it. So that's where in-app advertising has really started to shift. Um, and actually this most recent year that we saw uh, word games actually used to be more IP driven, but now they're much, 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 much more ad driven. They saw a big shift in ad revenue growing actually 48% year over year. So instead of maybe players paying for hints on that word puzzle or looking for an extra move here and there, um, now a lot of those work games are supporting things like, hey, if you want an extra move, instead of having to pay for this move, and let's say you can buy a bundle of five hits or something like that for like a dollar or 99 cents, um, now you can watch a rewarded video ad and you can just get one of those instead of a bundle of five, and that can just help you get a little bit past yeah. that level. Right, and interestingly, we see the shifts going both ways. So 
the next largest shift we, we actually see is in the opposite direction, where in sports games, there's now 15% uh, more of the total pie is represented by in-app purchases. So, you know, I, I think the drivers here are going to be a combination of consumer preference and then also um, developer strategy. Uh, so should the developer be in front of said economic um, difficulties um, and offer different options for the player to uh, access premium content, uh, you know, they could move the balance uh, in one way in one way on purpose. And I also want to add these categories are the public app store categories, which are pretty big buckets. Um, and, you know, like every mentioned, due to page number constraints, we can't go through every single nuanced genre. But, um, you know, when we when we magnify in there, sometimes it's a little bit more actionable on a developer. Um, and I assume that's also reflected in, I mean, part of Emery, what you we were talking about, um, I assume that's also why you're seeing developers integrate monetization packages earlier on in the development lifecycle. Yes. Which is another, another piece. Yes. Yeah. I know like there's, I mean, there's probably that overall trend that people doing it kind of soon. And so sorry, Nathan, I cut you off. <laughs> Did you have something? No, my, my man, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like, I think we saw about half of developers that do use a monetization package actually implement that within their first week um, because now developers are thinking about sooner and sooner, which I think is great. This previously, and I've been in this industry for probably a decade at this point, so I'm probably dating myself, but a lot of times when people made games, they would make the game and then they'd figure out monetization later. Like, as long as we have a good game, we can figure out monetization around it. And that's actually kind of a trap that you can fall into because if you've built your game loop and progression around there not being any monetization, um, then your whole progression um, gets thrown off if somebody does try to pay to go faster. So it's actually quite healthy for developers to consider this quite early in the process because it lets them build their games better over time. Mm -hmm. It feels a little bit like this is an example, maybe, and this is probably quite contentious, um, but hopefully not for too many people listening, of, of sort of like the business of games being considered at an earlier I'm sort of restating what you said Emery right um but thinking about your game as a business versus just being a game something you think about much earlier or potentially concurrently with when you're ideating right um and so and I think there's kind of like a, a few different um a few different pieces to that and one one other trend from the report which I think sort of um potentially also i mean this is this is actually full somewhere potentially between sort of like game as business and game as as game whatever that might mean and i'm sure that's a very big philosophical discussion in and of itself um but another piece of this is is game studios extending the lifespan of their titles um 33 year over year um can you tell us a little bit which to me kind of says we're doing a better job at like building these games as sustainable long-term businesses can you tell us a little bit more about that trend um, and why why you think it's happening? Totally. Uh, you know, and uh, like a lot of these answers, I, I think there's lots of influences, but I, I might say primarily the tools to run a live game uh, are more accessible. And then so is the information about, you know, kind of why, why would you do this? Uh, and I, I mentioned it earlier, but once you've acquired the user, uh, keeping them around uh, should be the priority. And let's, let's, Think about how many sequels we've seen in the last, um, I'd say, several years. I think it's a lot less. Um, I'm thinking specifically in my head about Fortnite and how they did Chapter 2. 
rather than Fortnite 2. Uh, and basically just upgraded the engine underneath the game, but kept all their players in the same place. Uh, actually, they, Epic does a lot of great things with that game. Um, yeah, I mean, like, we've seen this across mobile and stuff, yeah. too. Like, you know, it's no secret that Among Us published this under blog, too. You know, like, Among Us is a massive game near the end of 2020, but they were very small and unknown before that. They didn't have a ton of traction. And they were thinking about making Among Us 2 um, to really kind of take a new leap on life, so to say, for that game. But then when it blew up, they kind of were like, oh, we really need to retain um, and utilize our existing player base. Let's go back and upgrade the existing game. So I think you're saying the lifespan of your titles is, once again, really wise because, as Nathan alluded to earlier, the hardest part is getting that user to play your game and you don't want to have any friction that you know, continue to play by introducing another SKU or another app um, for them to use. So moving from sort of um, data insights to best practices or tips, what techniques do you guys, I mean, you're in a unique position to, to look at the industry from kind of a bird's eye view. What techniques do you feel are often sort of like overlooked? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to jump off here. Actually, this is exciting for me because um, I, I'd love to mention OfferWall. Um, I think it's a, it's a monetization tool strategy that, that wasn't really on my radar until last year. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a, a feature where players can complete um, offers, uh, such as signing up for Dollar Shave Club, donating to American Cancer Society, downloading, reaching level five in a game. Once they complete this task or offer, they're then rewarded in their original game with premium currency. So like watching an ad or like purchasing currency, except, um, you know, through maybe an avenue that they're more interested in or, or maybe actually already spending on. Um, so advertisers such as Dollar Shave Club sign up um, and uh, once they've connected the, the new user, they let the game know, hey, you know, send those five gems over. In return for this, uh, the mobile game publishers receive uh, more than they would have with a regular advertisement uh, because the advertiser is purchasing um, you know, a very engaged user uh, or, or specific outcome. And I would say uh, it works really, really well in games where you want the currency. Um, so if your game is, is one where uh, you sometimes run out of gems, um, this could be an option for you. And I will say with the recent privacy changes also, like advertisers are ultimately, they're not looking just to acquire a user, they're looking to acquire an engaged user who's done something specific. Um, so in the case of like, hey, if I want to get it, somebody who has got to level five in my game, um, they're willing to pay much more for that user. So off-wall offer is actually a very direct channel to get an engaged user for the advertiser, which translates to really, really great payouts for the publisher. You know, we talk about... Um, ECPM, which is Latin for effective cost per mil, mil mean thousand, uh, weird ad type thing that you have to learn as you're going through advertising. Um, but basically like a standard ECPM that you might get for a rewarded video ad is $10 for every 1000 views. But on offer wall, you get the translation and it can become like $400 um, ECPM if you do the conversion between it. And it's because advertisers will pay top dollar for that that user who does, you know, sign up for their title and get level five or for a, a brand advertiser like Dollar Shave Club or American Society, you know, getting something to actually complete that action. And it's actually quite helpful not to just think of Offerwall as like an advertising unit, but more of an opportunity for players to engage with the game. Like um, if you think about like 
walking down your local grocery store aisle and you go to the chip section, um, sometimes you'll see bags of chips with, uh, you know, sponsorships on them. For example, I remember, you know, going to my local Safeway, which is a grocery market we've got over here in America, and then seeing a bag of Cheetos that had like a big old Minecraft logo across it. And if you, um, you know, bought that bag of Cheetos and you open it up, there'd be a little code on the inside of the bag that you could redeem for some kind of items in Minecraft or Halo or whatever hot game was out right now. And, you know, a large game like Minecraft or Halo can do that because they can probably reach out to Frito-Lay and, uh, hey, we'd love to do a partnership that'll get more of our players eating your snacks. Uh, but that takes, you know, big business development teams, branding teams to get together to coordinate all of that. What OfferWallet actually does is actually opens up that um, sponsored offer marketplace to games and developers of all sizes, mm -hmm. which I think is really cool because, you know, a smaller game developer can never hope to contact Frito-Lay and even hear a call back. But now, let's say, um, yeah. you know, Frito-Lay is doing an offer wall campaign where they want people to redeem a code um, for um, one of their chips in the game or something like that. And then you can, like, redeem it that actually connects to offer wall through it. Well, that's great because now every game that's on the OfferWall platform can participate in that. So now Frito-Lay also gets access to um, a much wider audience than they would have normally just from a single kind of direct partnership. So OfferWall, democratizing access to Frito-Lay. New tagline. It's for all. Yeah, in theory, we are responsible for marketing the OfferWall, so you, you helped me out a little bit there. Um, and, and now sort of like looking ahead, um, what are your predictions for the trends that you guys sort of expect to see in 2023 for mobile games? What are you tell us what you're going to be talking about a year from now on? No this problem. Course. My crystal ball is fresh from the shop, so um, I, I just no, I, I I kid, but I think I think we'll continue to see the retro gaming continue. Um, we saw a few breakout games this year that that used um, you know kind of the 8-bit, 16-bit style, um, and they did it on multiple platforms. Uh, so. I think that we'll see more of these um, good ideas um, that might not be cinematic masterpieces uh, show up, especially with the support of um, artificial intelligence, aiding more people, creating more things more quickly. Um, I think the good ideas are going to bubble up. Yeah, and then if I were to also look at my crystal ball, which is maybe not as polished as Nathan's, uh, I haven't looked at it in a while, but you know, we talked about how... Um, studios are kind of investing into their existing portfolios of games and kind of extending the lifespan of what's currently live. Um, in uncertain economic times like this, a lot of places will fall back on the proven IPs. We see this in the movie industry as well. Um, but you want to fall back on things that you know uh, can provide you probably pretty predictable and stable returns. And what I would say is that we might see the revival of some classic live mobile games have really been on app stores for probably their inception over a decade. I'm talking like games that you probably remember when iPhones first came out, like Fruit Ninja, um, or even things like Subway Servers and stuff like that, that are really going to kind of lean back into, hey, we've got a ton of players who are still playing this. We're kind of a name brand in in this space. Like I remember when I first, I, I need to have a smartphone. I had an iPod Touch, but I played a ton of Angry Birds because that was one of the, the games that was really available at that time. Um, you're going to see a lot of those kind of classic games um, maybe even take a new spin and put a fresh coat of paint under existing title that's already live. You just, so instead of releasing like Angry Birds 5 or something, they might just take the original Angry Birds, you know, like one or two or three, 
and just kind of like really revamp them because you still have a big player base playing those games and it's a really good opportunity to kind of re-engage players it reminds me of the tony hawk that came out i think it was last year and i i feel like that was a, a an example of the the old cool ideas and us being ready to see them again yeah and it's like the idea of like that retro yeah. resurgence right like 2d games are kind of coming back into vogue yeah the same thing as like people are you know i think audiences are kind of pining for the good old days of like hey i'd love to see this game rebate right yeah yeah not not just in gaming um <laughs> so uh thank you guys both so much for coming on last question First of all, where can people find the report? So the report can be downloaded entirely for free um, from, I, I guess I could say a URL. It might be hard to like follow along. So maybe we put something in the description or something that people click on. But it is create.unity.com uh, slash gaming hyphen report. And you can download it for free from there. There it is. There it is, guys. Um, and let's say someone is sort of intrigued by one specific sort of uh, trend there that they want to dive in into more deeply. How can um, uh, either they or, or a listener, in fact, contact um, your team? Uh, yeah, and really the easiest way to get in touch with us, and you know, we're kind of bad about like not having a proper intake form, but is to really contact myself or Nathan directly. Um, you can reach me at. Um, once again, I'm going to say some names, so maybe better put these in the description, but you can reach me at uh, emory, E-M-O-R-Y, uh, dot erpan, I-R-P-A-N, at unity.com, um, and then Nathan at Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N, dot tenbor, T-E-N-B-O-E-R, at unity.com. Once again, terrible mouthful, so probably better that we just have something that people... You hit it on perfectly, yeah. yeah. Perfect. We can, we can do that. We can do that too. Well, again, thank you both for being on the show today. Um, and thank you everyone else as always for listening. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.